Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Brooklyn-based figurative painter Margaret Boland. She creates paintings and pastels that some say are both spellbinding and psychologically charged. Her work confronts contemporary issues of identity through probing and deeply personal pictures that question Western societal expectations of gender, race, power, and beauty. To best articulate her narrative, I will read her words. In many of my paintings, I have depicted both Caucasian and African Americans in what I see as a struggle to express the self. My subjects triumph. They look back at you through all the makeup, the costumes, the times and history in which they are placed, completely whole. Their eyes hold their unique souls and stare you down. None of my subjects are ever victims. Margaret Bolin is a white woman who enjoys painting black figures. The resulting backlash inspired me to share her narrative to explain why. Margaret's work is included in many important private and public collections, and she has received major accomplishments. She is currently an adjunct faculty member at the New York Academy of Art, where she has taught painting for over 10 years. She works closely with the Jenkins Johnson Gallery and independent curator Dexter Wimberly. Enjoy this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, and welcome Margaret Boland. Thank you. Margaret, it's so wonderful to have you join me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Phyllis. I appreciate it. Yes, yes. Your voice is an important one, and listeners will understand why. I feel that way once we get into this this conversation. So let us start with you sharing with us, when did you realize that you are an artist? It's an interesting question, Phyllis, because I don't think, I've, I've been nervous about using the word artist all my life. It seems like a big word. And it's like when I was young, no one said they were a poet, even if they wrote poetry, even if they had a Yale poet um, win, you know, a prize. It seems like you're putting yourself in very high echelon. But now everybody says they're an artist. So it's become a very easy word to access. Um, But it used to mean that you had achieved some stature in the world. It's it's hard to claim for oneself. Um, I've drawn most everybody I you know, I know or teach, they've drawn all their lives and they've drawn as a way to escape often the world in which they were living and to focus on something they could control. So as long as I have been alive, I've used art as a way to gain control over my life and to put in front of me what I wanted to see. Interesting. 
And do you recall if there were any other artists that influenced you when you were young? Well, I'm, I'm, from a, I'm from a North Carolina, small mill town in North Carolina named Burlington, called Burlington. Well, the name of the town is Burlington. <laughs> and it's 30 miles from Chapel Hill, 20 miles from Greensboro. Um, when I first went, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to go to school. And it was 30 miles from my hometown, but it was like, it was the equivalent of a young person now going to Paris, it was that large a difference. Hmm. The, the only time I, the only art I knew of as a kid was a very lousy reproduction of Jesus cling to the cross <laughs> that was in the chapel of my church, the First Baptist Church of Burlington, North Carolina. There was in the old days when there was a, an art appreciation teacher that came every other Wednesday. The other Wednesdays was the music appreciation teacher. So kids, even in a public school system, in a rather poor town, were in doc, were given blue boy. We were told various, we were given various images, but I never saw any art until the same school system put us on a bus when I was nine years old and took us to the Raleigh Museum of Art and State Museum in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was the first time I ever saw an actual painting. Mm. And I will never forget it because I looked and it was as if doors opened up and you could walk into a space that wasn't in that room, that wasn't North Carolina, that was another world. And I couldn't believe the power of that. I remember the, the height I was vis-a-vis -vis the paintings and they looked like there was something beautiful beckoning to me on the other side of that wall. And I wanted that boy. I wanted to be a part of that. And I would, when I went home, there was no correlation to the drawings I was making or the paintings I was making in school. But I knew that that world existed somewhere. And I wanted to learn how to get through that door. Yeah, art is wonderful. I really want to dive into why you, or when you, how you, what motivated you to paint these beautiful paintings of young black children. Uh, I know you're passionate about it, and it, com it comes from your heart. Um, but let's, let's share with the audience um, you as a white woman painting black figurative work the whole story behind that and, and experiences you've had since? Well, it may, it may be disappointing to people, but I never made a decision to do that. I backed into it. Um, quickly put, I was doing a series of paintings built on Olympia, the Olympia story. And one of the things I did was I took the painting by Manet and recast the characters. And I looked at that painting and the person who seemed to be most empowered in that painting was the young black girl carrying flowers behind the white girl lying on the couch in front of us. Mm -hmm. Manet puts you in the position, physical position when you're looking at the painting of the John entering the room and looking at that girl. And I look at that painting, the white girl lying before you. And I looked at that painting and man, I wanted to be the black girl getting out of that room with my clothes on holding the flowers. <laughs> so I, I always looked at that painting and thought of those two women as soldiers in a foxhole, that they were there for each other and thought about that entire, what, what all that of that meant. As a woman, all of my life, all of us, well, certainly of my generation, 
have been put in a world in which the male, a male appreciation of one literally gave you credibility in the world. It, it gave you resonance. It was the one way you got a shadow. You existed if a man loved you. And that was, to me, what I was going after in that painting. In making that series of paintings, I recast the white girl as a dwarf whom I knew in my neighborhood. And I needed a young black girl to be the other person. And without thinking about what the compositions are going to be, a friend of mine who's African-American told me, heck, I got a beautiful cousin named Kenyatta. And he introduced me to her. I started going through the relationship. I met these both, and I knew Anna the dwarf and Kenyatta the young woman. And I started basically making paintings of them, drawings and paintings of them in my studio. Long story short, Kenyatta became a big part of my life. And every day, at she, her job, one of her jobs was to pick up her niece from school. Her niece was six years old. And Kenyatta would leave. I was painting only from life. So Kenyatta would leave my studio, run, get her, her niece, bring her back to the studio. And Kenyatta and I would put together a video for her to look at, M&Ms, which children are not allowed to have in my world. And she would sit there. Her name was Janasia Smith, what everybody called her JJ. And Jay was tiny for her age, really quiet child. She would come into my studio and sit down, watch the movies for a while, eat the candy for a while. And then she would start to creep up onto the bed upon which Kenyatta, her aunt, was lying. She wanted to be part of the paintings. And for a long time, I dealt with this like, okay, honey, you know, go over there. We'll be with you in a moment. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, you idiot. She's incredibly beautiful. Paint her. So in the beginning, I started painting Jay just as she was, mainly doing drawings of her at the very beginning. And I started to realize that for Jay, Jay would take a pose and man, she would hold that thing. She would longer than any adult. She wanted to be seen and she wanted to be the center of attention. And I gave her that in that studio. We got to the place where Kenyatta was the one who would sit in the chair and watch the TV, <laughs> while Jay was the person that I was drawing or painting. And I, my way of working is I'm attracted to a human being. And then their storyline starts to be what I make. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not that blank a canvas. I'm from the South. I was born into the segregated South. The single largest fact, visual fact of my life was race. And the largest confusing aspect of my life was the way that black and white people are treated. And that is counter to the way everyone is speaking. To a child, to anyone, that is one extremely confusing situation. When you're a little girl, you're taught in a Christian religion, you know, everything that Christ taught. Uh, and then it's refuted totally within the way that people are behaving in the world in which I was raised. So children in that situation learn at a very early age that they can't trust the adults, which creates an extraordinary chasm for kids. This is a story that I listen to from one Southerner after another. What we're even going through right now with Trump is horrifying to me. Um, all my life, I've tried. I fled the South. I did. Uh, but I have wanted to hold on to the dream of the South as home. 
I've wanted to hold on to the best ideas I had of the South. And these past four years, especially this last year, that has been especially difficult. I would never have believed that the, all right, the evangelicals who raised me in the Baptist church stood for everything, true, kind, fair, and none of that has proven to be true. And that seems to echo the childhood I had and what drove me north and what has driven the paintings I have made. The paintings I have made have been about damage. They're about the difference in what is true and what we, what is true and what we are, what is revealed to be true to us in the world. That chasm is what tortures me and makes me work, makes me draw. And that inevitably has to do with race. There was no way for me to escape that. I did not consciously say, I am going to paint African-Americans. But when I started to paint, a painting that included an African-American girl, Kenyatta, all of my energy started to pull in that direction. And of course, that was because of the way I was raised. And that just took over. Jay was a shocking child. She is a shocking young woman. Beautiful. She was born, you know, in a tough situation. And her mother was 14 when she was born. She was raised in a strong matriarchy. I know her grandmother, her great-grandmother. I think her grandmother is my age and was then, not her mother. Actually, I think her grandmother is my age. That's right. Well, I said that. Great-grandmother, maybe. No, I was between <laughs> the two of them. I was between the two of them, but it was a large group of, of women. And I went every single week to that house to pick Jay up. I would pick Jay up to bring her back to my studio on Saturdays. And I know that whole family. I was, you know, at many parties in that family's, you know, center, the center in the apartment buildings where parties were held. I know everyone in that family. And I know those stories. Jay grew up, her cousin, I, I did a painting, the first painting I did of Kenyatta, where I put white paint on her, was because it was a bridal painting. And the Jay's cousin was the person Yetta brought in to act as the bridesmaid in that picture, Brianna. Brianna is the bane of Jay's existence. Brianna is the math whiz, the taller child, uh, the star in the family. And Jay was the smaller child, the athletic child, the kid who didn't do as well in school. So she found in my studio a place where she could shine. I took Brianna, I took five of the family. We all went to, to Washington, D.C. A painting that Brianna was in, was in, and Kenyatta was in the um, portrait competition in Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian portrait competition. I was given a People's Choice Award. Wonderful. More people wrote in and basically thought I should have been given the first award than anybody else. So we went down there for a movie that they were doing. And I, we had a great time. We stayed in a hotel. And I taught Jay to swim in a weekend there. <laughs> My children, it took me weeks to get them to put their face in the water. But Jay took to it like a fish. And Brianna was with us, and Brianna wouldn't put her face in the water, just like my children. So Jay was the star, with me 
suddenly she was the center of attention and she would do anything, hold any pose for me. And we went from there. She liked the makeup that she saw Brianna and Kenyatta put on for those bridal paintings. She liked putting on the makeup. She liked me putting the makeup on her. She loved the dresses. I got these dresses. It all comes back to painting bridal pictures. David's Bridal is a company that makes bridal dresses and all of the other people's dresses, you know, mother of the bride, bridesmaids dresses. And you can get them on sale for under a hundred bucks. So I would go to those sales and pick up these dresses and they're, they're hanging on a rack in my studio. And Jay would basically pick and choose the ones she wanted to wear. And she loved it. <laughs> so she would put on those dresses, strike poses. And when you're sitting in front of a live model, you're just running after the, the information. You're not, you don't think, you, you can't stop and think. You're just running after whatever you're grabbing. When the person leaves the room, you take the child back, drive him back to the family, and you come back to the studio, you, oh, Lord, what did I get? Mm-hmm. And from that, you extrapolate to make the painting. And that's how it all started. Did you have negative backlash for the white paint? Oh, God, yes. I mean, bizarrely in the beginning, I was terrified. I took a painting in the time I, during that portrait competition. I was always terrified I was going to be torn to pieces over it. <laughs> and, and you were, right? Oh, Lord, not in the beginning, Phyllis. I was afraid of that. And yet I got a, a place called the Title Basin Review, which is a literary quarterly based in Virginia, in the D.C. area, immediately they contacted me and said they wanted to put my work on the cover and they wanted to interview me. This is an African-American literary review. Hmm. And I went to D.C. I was given the address of a coffee shop and told I was meeting a writer there named Randall Horton. My heart was in my throat. I thought, okay, he's going to tear me limb from limb. I walk into their room and there's the most expansive, fantastic man imaginable there. A poet who's now a big, big name. He's, he's a musician as well. Um, they're making a movie of his life story. He's a novelist. His name Randall Horton. I met him then. He's been a friend of mine since then. And I said to him, Randall, I'm scared to death that people are going to hate me because I'm a white woman making these pictures. And he said, look, I'm just glad somebody is making those pictures. Hmm. He then started making poems about Jay. He wrote many, many poems about Jay. So my initial walk into this room was, was bizarre. I mean, God bless, open arms to me saying, sister, it does not matter that you're white. Nobody, when this is also pre, you know, your face is pasted all over the internet, but the images were allowed to stand for themselves. Many people liked the work who did not know I was white. That's no longer possible. Many people bought my work not knowing I was white. Mm-hmm. I had a young woman write my essay for my second show. She said, I hated the fact when I found out you were white. Wow. I hated myself for liking the work. Wow, it's unfortunate. It is some beautiful work, my goodness. And it's a beautiful, Jay is stunning. It was, it's, it's been complicated mm-hmm. for, I've got black collectors who knew I was white, walked into the game knowing it, but they would say things to me like, you know what? I love it anyway. It was always that. I like it anyway, even though I have to swallow the nightmare of the fact that you're white. 
Wow, it's amazing. And it's been that way all, it's been an inching forward waiting to get slapped down the whole time. And look, I get it. I mean, I'm not a fun, I understand. My position has been, look, I'm painting feminist work. And because of who I am, I always saw, look, the people who were the heroes of my life were black people. As a kid, my mother had a nervous breakdown because my two sister, I, sisters died as babies, one in succession. My mother had a nervous breakdown. My father was a, was a man without a college, without a high school degree who owned a dry cleaning store. A black woman came who's a friend of his mother's who my, my grandmother worked with black women in a, a mill night shift pulling socks. My father was raised with black children because they were the children of his mother's friends. One of those women came into my childhood home literally to take care of my brother and I during my mother's falling apart. She was love to me. She gave love. This is a typical story in the South where white children find love with black women Mm -hmm. who are domestics in the home. Now, you couldn't call Dorothy a domestic in my home. We didn't have the money for a domestic. But it's a common story. It's a cliched story. And as an adult, thinking back on it, it stunned me and still does to this day that Dorothy loved me. She didn't hate my guts. Uh, She was a person living in the segregated South. She was a person being treated like Black people were treated in that world. And yet she did not take that out against me. Mm -hmm. That mercy has been something I've been trading on all of my life. So when I was painting about heroic women, I painted Black women. Because those were the biggest heroes, frankly, all right, they were the only heroes of my childhood. Wow, that's interesting. And that's, well, I was raised as a white girl that women weren't supposed to take that role. Men had that role. Black women were the only women in my childhood who had that role. The patriarchies had been destroyed by slavery, destroyed by Jim Crow laws. White women were holding down families, patriarchal positions in the South when I was a child. They were the only strong women I met who knew that it was on them. They had to hold the center. They had to hold. They were the heroes, for God's sakes. I have no memories of white heroes who were women. I don't. I don't. I was raised to revere beauty queens, uh, strong white women who were behind the men. I was raised to think that it was very cool for you to make your husband think that his smart idea was yours. Always to be some in subterfuge. Never to walk out front and say, this is a problem. Damn it, I'm dealing with it. I only knew black women who did that. I really appreciate you sharing that all with us. Yeah, it's goodness. painful as shit. Yeah, no, it's I know good. It's good. Right now, it's kill me. <laughs> no, but, but damn it, it's it's the truth, and they know it. Yeah, they know it. Right now, Phyllis, I called my cousin. Actually, no, I was on email, and I said, Sally Ann, you are a nurse. 
help me understand how you were voting for Trump. And God help me, she's older than I am. And she said to me, well, my husband knows more than I do and he thinks it's best. And I just sat there and thought, my Lord, it's still happening. It is. And you know what, I'm going to interrupt you now because... Go right ahead. (laughs) I don't want to get on that subject of him. But um, so let's switch to art. Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> please. Uh, it's been great though. When I'm you, you, I I feel like I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Yeah, when you and Thank I you. agreed for me to uh, uh, feature you, um, and that is the subject of white women painting black subjects. So let's talk about art. Go. What do you feel, or what would you say, is the language of art? Well, what I teach is the language of art is, look, in 25 words or less, oil painting was created, fresco was created, art was created to teach the Christian stories. Well, first the Greek myths to the heathens, to the, to the multitudes. If you look at the Christian myths and the church, the origin of the church, you've got people who were ignorant. Women were, most people did not know how to read and write. So they would go into a church, let's quickly go to the Renaissance, they would go into a church where a man, a priest was mumbling Latin in the front. Nobody was teaching them anything and they couldn't read anything. So the way they literally learned the Christian stories were frescoes or pictures on the walls. Hmm. So it was a very important job to be an artist then. You were teaching the main storyline of both power and religion of the day. And very quickly, people understood that, artists understood that you can't get people, the Christian myths, the Greek myths, all myths are basically grisly stories. They're snuff films. You've got crucifixions, beheadings. You basically have power struggles. That's what you're making pictures of throughout time. So power struggles are by nature ugly. What do you do? You create a language of beauty to seduce someone into looking at the image long enough to be educated. The seduction must occur. And seduction must be, art is the antidote to the chaos of life. We all know that life is meaningless and chaotic. The cruel paradox of being human is that we can perceive a wholeness. We know that we're going to die. Those two things are cruel. Most mammals can't understand that. And yet we see it as positive, but it's also the paradox of that. It is also the great pain of being human. And art steps in and says, okay, yes, you know you're going to die. You know there's an end game. And therefore, here's the other side to that, though. The shadows, the good side of that is that it does therefore make living important. (laughs) You know that life is all chaos, okay? The good side to that is an image of wholeness is possible in your mind. So you can hold, even as you are living in a world of pain, the conception of world without pain. Art walked in as a language of wholeness to encapsulate that need in the human psyche. What I like to teach is that all art forms hold, hold that as a common denominator. All of, all of the languages of art, they are all pointing to chaos, looking at chaos through a lens of wholeness. 
And in so doing, they can allow you to learn about the nightmare of living and chart your way through it and take on that burden. The language of wholeness in, in painting was developed through, well, you look back to the caves. You go from the caves to Greek art. I mean, my friends of mine who are artists are going to faint and fall down at how quickly I'm going through the, the, the history of, <laughs> of art. But in 25 words or less, it was in order to make a language that could be accessible to anyone who wanted to learn it, you reduce the human figure, for example, into simple geometric solids. Look at Raphael. Simple geometric solids, the head becomes an egg, etc., so that you can, you can imagine a human being, because you can imagine geometric solids, you can imagine that person moving through space. In painting, in art, you must show a space. The rectangle, the work of art in painting, it's always housing space. Now, we know that's a flat plane. The miracle of art is that it, it, whether it's Rothko or Raphael, it's giving you a space that plunges through the flat plane of painting into a space created by the artist. Now, that's magic. It's a magical space. The artist, however, must command that space. He must know that his, he or she must know that his first job is to create a world. Now, the filmmaker knows that, man. Filmmakers learn through painting that their job is to create a world. If you create a world, you know this from watching film. I teach more from film than I do painting because students understand that. If a filmmaker in the beginning of a film gives you a world you can imagine, he owns you. He can take you anywhere then and teach you, shed anything that he wants to believe about the world, and you will feel it. You will understand it. You will take it in. That's fascinating. It's just the truth, Phyllis. It's just the truth. I mean, one of the things I'm always saying to my students, this ain't Margaret telling you this. This is your legacy. This is simply what millions of people, all right, hundreds of thousands of people throughout time have pushed forward as a language for you. This is just there. This has been a great interview, and um, this is going to be our last question, but Go ahead. What, what, what do you feel the role is of an artist? It's to give. Um, I almost say hope, but hell, why do we look at art? We look at art. The beauty of painting is the fact that it stays still. Film, we, we stumble out of a film. I stumbled out of Moonlight, all right? Barry Jenkins' film. I was just knocked to my knees by what I had experienced. And I, it, I was crying. I walk out of the movie theater. I walk around the block with <laughs> Bam, and I went back in. I talk about, when I talk to my students, I say, a painting is a love affair. You get seduced, you get swept into a place you've never been before, you are betrayed, something tough is taught, taught you there, you, you, you're brought back to the picture plane, you're spat back out, and all you want to do is go back in again. <laughs> you love being seduced, you love being taken to a place that's ecstatic, and yet what you're being taught, if the artist is doing his job, is that art is not that life is, you're taught a hard lesson inside of that painting, inside of Barry Jenkins, inside of any great work of art, a tough truth is revealed to you. You learn that tough truth in the arms of someone who loves you, the artist. You're brought back to reality 
and you trust that the next artist is going to take you on that trip again. Mm-mm. If you don't go in somewhere and learn something, the artist is not really worth his salt, his or her salt. And the art can't just be about a hard lesson. If you get an illustration of, we all know as artists, an illustration keeps you on the surface. An illustration isn't a world to enter. You don't have an experience. An illustration is didactic. You look at it, you see, okay, he wants me to think, he or she wants me to think this or that, but I don't have an experience. I simply read the, the poster, in effect. I read what this person wants me to think, but I don't have an experience. This person hasn't changed anything inside of me. Great art works on the soul. And that's, it's a large, I'll give you that, it's a large brief. <laughs> and, and look, Phyllis, I don't feel, feel that I've ever succeeded in my life. One of the things that's very painful about going into a show of your own is all you see are the failures. All you see when you look from one painting to the next is how you failed. The crazy thing about art, I mean, it's, it's also a description of insanity, but you think, <laughs> damn it, this time I'm going to make it. And you try again. You fail over and over and over, but every single time you think maybe this time, this time I'll win. Well, you've certainly have won. Let me tell you, those well, pictures yeah. of Jay are 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 beautiful, and Thank I you. look Thank forward to to sharing them with listeners. I appreciate that, Phyllis. I I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, to say the least. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you. You're Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. <laughs>